Welcome to the Bridgeway Church Podcast. My name is David Bowden, and every week I sit down with one or several members of our church staff and host a conversation about how Bridgeway is seeking to fulfill its mission as the Church of Jesus Christ here in our city. If you are a member of Bridgeway, we hope this helps you more deeply engage with what God is doing in our midst. And if you aren't a part of Bridgeway, we hope you feel welcome and that our discussions may lead to more Christ-glorifying ministry in your own context. Let's jump in. Well, welcome everyone to the Bridgeway Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us. We're kicking off a new series right now on how to read your Bible. And uh, I'm going to sit down with Lead Pastor Sam Storms over the next four to five weeks, and we're going to talk about different genres in the Bible and how to read them, uh, because the Bible is not written in one style. It's not written uh, in one period of time. It's not written by one author. And so whenever we come to different parts of the Bible, we can end up tripping over ourselves trying to figure out how to read it. And uh, if we read one text of Scripture that's poetry, uh, and we try to apply the same principles to reading, say, like narrative, uh, things can get confusing. And, and so hopefully we can help navigate some of that. And uh, so we're going to start off by talking about how to read biblical narrative uh, today. But per- perhaps before we do that, Sam, can you can you talk to me a little bit about biblical genre? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Just t- talk to me like, what is genre? Why should we care about it? Things like that, maybe. I was going to jump right in on that point. I'm Good. glad you did. <laughs> I'm used uh, to you prefacing things now. Yeah. People may not even be familiar with the term. Yeah. They may look at it and say, Genry. Genry. <laughs> it's G-E-N-R-E. Um, I love the way uh, D.A. Carson pronounced it because he speaks French fluently. Oh, he right. Jean. Jean. With his, with his slow, <laughs> yes, deep voice, yes, too. Yes, yeah. Jean. And uh, those of us in America call it genre, genre, <laughs> genre, genre, whatever. Um, but, you know, maybe a good illustration of this would be what happens when you walk into Barnes & Noble, for example. Mm-hmm, right. And you have these different categories of literature. You have a section that says fiction. You have another section that says biography. Uh, you have another section that says history. Another that says sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Uh, another that says teen romance. Uh, <laughs> right. Another says self-help. Um, another says nonfiction. I mean, you've got a multiplicity mm-hmm. of different kinds of books that are written for different reasons with different intent. And so uh, you wouldn't expect... Let's say, for example, you pick up a uh, a biography of Winston Churchill. Right. Uh, you would expect that it's going to be very chronologically precise. Mm-hmm. Dates are going to matter. Uh, and you wouldn't necessarily read that in the same way um, that you would, um, you know, a work out of the science fiction section. Right. Um, and th- they're operating with different principles. Mm-hmm. They're trying to communicate in a different way. You know, when we come to the Bible, um, we have multiple genres. We have, we're talking about narrative. Uh, people hear that word and they, what they basically immediately think of is story. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call it historical narrative. Uh, we have poetry right. uh, in the Psalms. Um, you don't read the Psalms the same way you do the epistles of Paul right. in the New Testament. And we'll talk about those differences. Mm-hmm. Um, you have... Um, uh, you have apocalyptic or prophecy. Uh, so, for example, I'm not going to read um, the book of Acts the same way I'd read the book of Revelation. Uh, you know, there's a, 
certainly – again, there are – let's be clear about this. There are certain underlying principles of interpretation that apply across the board. Yes, right. Um, but, again, there are certain distinctives of various kinds of literature, you know, wisdom literature. I think – here's a perfect example, and we'll talk about this when we get to uh, wisdom literature. You know, people read the book of Proverbs – as if it were the Pentateuch. Mm-hmm. You know, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, particularly Leviticus, let's say, as if the Proverbs were law. Right. And they are not law. <laughs> they are general principles. They are trends that admit of multitude of exceptions. Um, I, I tell people they are don't read Proverbs as if it's a promise. Read it as if it's a principle that's to guide living and decision-making. And if you, if you fail to make those distinctions— uh, you can get yourself in real trouble. So um, there are a multiplicity of different styles or types of literature in the Bible, each of which needs to be approached on its own terms with an understanding that, well, the author's intent in writing this um, it may be different from another author. Uh, I mean, we, we have, you know, we'll do this when we get into the Gospels. But the question is, are the Gospels, uh, in their portrayal of Jesus, comparable to our biographies today? Right. That's a massive debate going mm-hmm. on in, uh, in, in New Testament scholarship. Are they actual biographies of Jesus? Well, in a sense, they are, but there are also some, some significant differences. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have, um, you ha- for example, I, I picked up, um, reading right now through, I mentioned Churchill. I'm reading through this um, biography of Churchill. And um, I expect him to, to pretty much, unless he tells me otherwise, to portray things in a fairly precise chronological order. Mm-hmm. But in the Gospels, you don't have that. You have a Gospel author who will pick an episode out and replace it at a particular point because mm-hmm. uh, he's trying to uh, make a specific point. A classic illustration um, is the baptism and chronology uh, of Jesus? Right. Matthew it opens up with the 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 excuse me the uh, what am I trying to say the 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 uh, heritage of Jesus the, just all of oh, the... oh right his genealogy his genealogy yes. I was saying chronology God what's the matter with <laughs> it's late in the day folks uh, yeah the genealogy of yes. Jesus open Matthew opens he has a reason for that but when you come to Luke's gospel you have the genealogy stuck in at the end of chapter 3 in between the baptism of Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness and say, why would Luke do that? Why would Matthew shove his at the beginning? Luke would do it later. All sorts of of, um, theological reasons why they've constructed the narrative the way they have. Mm -hmm. And we're not accustomed to that in the 21st century. Right. So that's why when we talk about things like narrative or law or prophecy, we have to be familiar with what kind of literature is this? What are the unique uh, interpretive principles? Mm-hmm. So, for example, and I know we're getting way ahead of ourselves here, but and you read the Psalms. If you don't understand what synonymous parallelism is, <laughs> I know that's big language right. for people, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah, what's the difference between line A and line B? Why yeah. are they, they seem like they're saying the same thing, but I've got to pick, figure out what the difference is. Yeah, yeah. And, and instead of realizing he's saying the same, same thing, thing in different ways. <laughs> right. Or antithetical parallelism. Right. saying the opposite thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, or synthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things that you, you need to understand about the nature of, of poetic literature. So that's the kind of the, the different genre or genre of the Bible that we have to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. And again, like you said at the beginning, 
not all scriptures written at the same time by the same person uh, for the same purpose. Right. And unfortunately, what I think some Christians tend to do that gets them in trouble is they flatten out the Bible. Right. And by flattening it out, I mean they don't take note of the time in, for example, in the Old Testament, in Israel's history when this was written, and they don't take note of the particular covenant that was in play in God's relationship with his people at the time mm-hmm. that that was written. And they don't have they don't have a sense for, for example, the function of typology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the multiplicity of types or foreshadowings of Jesus in the Old Testament, the antitype being fulfilled in the new. And if mm-hmm. if you're if you're just reading um, the Bible as if it was all written at one time for one purpose by one person in one particular literary genre, mm-hmm. man, that, that creates havoc. So yes. that's why this is important for us to to do in this series. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm glad you said all of that. I think those are some of the, the concerns and, and, and barriers that I, I wanted to, to, to address uh, in doing this episode in this mm-hmm. series. So I'm glad you, you laid all that out. Let's talk specifically about narrative. Uh, before we obviously jump into it, mm-hmm. help us understand what what parts of the Bible would qualify as narrative, um, and then maybe what makes um, different um, narrative books, you know, what, are there differences or is are all narratives the same? Is the Pentateuch the same as the Gospels or like, you know? I'm, I'm yeah, that's a big question. Um, approximately 60% of the Bible is narrative. Mm-hmm. Now, that might shock some people. 60%. Right. Um, and narrative yeah, for example, there may be on occasion a mixture of genre. In other words, where you might have um, narrative dropped into a section that we would otherwise consider to be law. Right. So take, for example, Genesis. Mm-hmm. Well, is Genesis narrative? Well, sure it is, especially from, um, you know, uh, after the flood on, you have the narrative of the calling of Abraham, the birth of the nation of Israel, the you know, the um, uh, movement of God's people into Egypt. So that's narrative, but you wouldn't read Genesis 1 through 3 as narrative. Right, it's more poetic, Yeah, right? yeah. Um, certainly, uh, you know, Exodus is a mixture. Exodus, mm-hmm. first, what, first 19, 19 chapters? narrative, then it moves into law. Yeah. But there's also some little narrative chunks inside of sure, that. Right. Sure, sure. Or I was thinking even between Exodus 14 and 15, there's a narrative of people passing through the Red Sea, but then in 15, there's a poetic song of Moses. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the, the sections that we would normally consider narrative are uh, the historic, what they call the historical books, like 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd mm-hmm. Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. Although in those, you know, especially in Chronicles, you get all these genealogies right. that baffle people and, and bore them. Right. They're all they're kind of their own genre in yeah. a sense. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Uh, Joshua certainly is narrative uh, mm-hmm. of, of the conquest of the land. Um, I'm thinking of trying to think of others. I'm working my way. Um, th- those are the primary narratives. Ruth Esther. Yeah. 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 Um, but but maybe something like this, like maybe someone would think, oh, Job. Job tells a story, right? But like that wouldn't necessarily be narrative, would it? Well, or not, would it? <laughs> it's the narrative of Job's life. Yeah. <laughs> but but does that? Uh, yeah, that that's one that we need to talk about here in just a minute because okay. it, it's a very important distinction we need to make. Um, certainly in um, you know in the prophets, mm. there there are narrative sections, but. Um, you can't, for example, just like the book of Daniel, certainly there is narrative in the portrayal of the history and the story of Israel in exile, but it's also 
apocalyptic, it's right. prophetic, and highly symbolic dreams and visions and and, and such. Um, the minor prophets can certainly contain narrative portrayals of Israel's mm-hmm. experience, especially in their idolatry, but but that isn't their primary focus. In the New Testament, um, certainly the Book of Acts mm-hmm. would I think everybody would immediately recognize is probably the the mostly the most purely narrative section of the New Testament. Right. Um, so these are stories. These are historical dramas that are uh, designed to describe for us. Um, the history of God's people and the revelation of God to his people. Mm-hmm. And, now, yeah, but then there would be a difference maybe between, and you've kind of highlighted this already, um, between what we would conceive of as narrative, because if you say historical narrative today, we have standards that you would want to meet. You've mm-hmm. talked about some of those, chronology, right. uh, the exactness of dates, and um, maybe like if you're going to quote someone, it's got to be word for word. Right. You know, uh, but they, they're doing kind of like theological narrative. So like maybe help us with that distinction. Well, yeah. In, in a, and again, I, we need to be careful we don't make absolute unqualified statements as if what we're saying applies to all narrative. Mm-hmm. But in lots of narrative, maybe even most, they are not concerned with um, numerical precision. Mm-hmm. They will round off numbers. They'll give approximate dates. That isn't error. Mm-mm. That's just the way those people thought right. in that period of time. And and maybe that's the most important thing. What's well, one of the most important things people need to remember? And that is we in the 21st century expect people in all the centuries preceding us to think in the same way that we do, in the same categories. We are a very technologically precise uh, generation. We operate with computers and, and watches and everything else. And they just simply didn't operate within that framework. Right. And it's difficult. I, I tell people all the time, when you're reading the Bible, you have to somehow, you have to e- extract yourself from your own time and as best you can plant your feet in the mindset, in the time period of the people who are writing. Um, I'll give, I'll give you, a, you know, one good example of this, and at least we don't need to get off on this bunny trail, but um, we think globally. Now, I mean, mm, when, when, right. when, when you say, if David, you, if you said to me, said, Sam, talk to me about uh, the whole earth. <laughs> well, I would envision a globe uh-huh. and I could, we could bring it in here or a world map and we'd talk about Australia to Somalia mm-hmm. to Siberia to Antarctica to the U.S. They didn't think that way in <laughs> biblical times. Right. The whole earth meant the inhabited world. Yes. That might be a very tiny portion of one particular country. Um, and we expect the biblical authors to write from the point of view of where we are in the 21st century from our scientifically advanced perspective. That is, that's bizarre. It's unfair to them. We have to try to put ourselves, we have to ask ourselves what conceivably could the audience of that particular author understand yes. by his terms? Mm-hmm. How would they have heard it? How would they have read it? How would they have made sense of the language being used? And that's a whole lot different from when we ask that question of ourselves today. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's very important. They um, chronological precision, uh, numerical precision, um, oftentimes are we might want to say fuzzy, but that doesn't mean they're wrong. Mm. That's just the way they functioned then. Uh, and we would expect God as he as he's inspiring biblical authors and, and impressing on their hearts the things to write. He's not going to put into their hearts and minds or 
give them insights that wouldn't have connected with the people of that day. Right. As if you're saying, all right, you know, David and Sam are going to be reading this whole story <laughs> in, you know, in 2019. And right. I'm, so I'm going to put it in language that they're going to understand. That's just not how it works. Um, perhaps the most important principle to keep in mind, I think, in interpreting narrative is the difference between description and prescription. Mm, okay. Um, and so I'll unpack what those terms yeah. mean. Many sections of Scripture are merely describing for us what happened. Okay, yep. They are simply saying, look, this is how it unfolded. This is the way people behaved. This is what certain individuals said to one another. And what the mistake that some Christians make is, well, anything that's in the Bible is designed to tell us how we are to live today. Right. That's not true. Yes, I think it's really helpful. Yes. Uh, and, the, you know, you mentioned the book of Job. So mm-hmm. let's just take Job, for example. Okay. Um, if you want to de- develop your doctrine of God, you got to be real careful when you go into the book of Job. Yeah. Because about a, a third to a half of the book mm-hmm. is bad theology. Right, and that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's Job's <laughs> friends trying to tell him what God is like and why he's suffering, and you must have sinned earlier in your life. You didn't really repent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're obviously uh, self-deluded and deceived. You, God doesn't uh, allow these sorts of afflictions to come upon the righteous, uh, all sorts. And then, of course, at the end of the book, God himself says, they did not speak rightly of me. Right. So you're you're sitting there reading the book of Job. You're saying, wow, this is the God of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And then the God of the Bible says, that's not me, folks. Right. Yep. <laughs> and, um, and so we have to, so what's going on? The, the author of the book of Job, whether it was Job or somebody else, mm-hmm. scholars differ, and it doesn't really matter. Nope. Um, the author of the book of Job is saying, here is what these people said. Here is how they responded to Job's suffering. Here's how they tried to, to uh, comfort their friend. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you're supposed to do. Right. And we need to evaluate that kind of historical narrative in light of the clear moral dictates that we find elsewhere in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So... Got to be real careful in reading it. And there, all through the for Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, you have stories of people doing horrendous things. Right. Uh, rape. Right. Um, uh, uh, mutilation, mm-hmm. murder. Um, you know, people don't realize how graphic and bloody and violent certain portions of, especially the Old Testament, can be. But the... the, the uh, the individual, oftentimes non-Christians who want to find something to ridicule yes. Christianity, that's where they go. They say, well, look, your inspired book uh, is telling us that it's okay to rape and murder and right. to treat people in this way. And we say, no, no, no. It's descriptive. It's simply describing or portraying for us what they did. Mm-hmm. Whether or not what they did was right or mm-hmm. wrong has to be determined on other grounds within the text of Scripture. Right. We do have criteria for telling us um, what is ethically good and what is ethically bad, but you can't just take a historical narrative or a story and say, well, I guess that's God's will for all mankind for all times. Right. Like, uh, would you say that the that would, would the Crusades be an interesting uh, a historical example of someone using, like, say, the descriptive nature of the conquest of Canaan 
uh, and saying that's prescriptive for the New Testament church to then go and violently take other lands. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that would be a, that'd be a perfect example yeah. of that. So it's like, and, and that's also like a hot button thing, and it's just it's helpful, I think, for us even apologetically as we're in conversations with non Christians to help people make that distinction: what's prescriptive, and what's descriptive. Sure. For uh, another example is polygamy. Oh, right. Um, yep. I mean, polygamy was permitted. It was a common cultural phenomenon, not only in Israel but outside of Israel. Um, that doesn't mean that God is endorsing polygamy today. We have very clear instruction in the New Testament that monogamy is God's intent. Um, or, you know, you have the example of, of Abraham. You read the story of Abraham. Here's this grand narrative of how um, Sarah brings Hagar to him and says, you know, right. have, have sex with my handmaid so you can have your, you know, your posterity and the promised child can come. Well, that doesn't mean that our wives should do that, you know, <laughs> right. if they've been childless up to this point. Just find another woman. Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> so we have to be careful. So if people are still wondering the difference between description, prescription, to describe something is merely to narrate or portray that a series of events. To prescribe something is to say, go and do likewise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is how I want you, God's saying, this is how I want you to live. Right. What would be an example of that? In, in, in especially Old Testament narrative? Sure. Uh, the first commandment. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Right. So here you have you have Israel going after multiplicity of gods, mm-hmm. all right, committing idolatry. Uh, you have Solomon who's setting up high places for each of the deities that the pagan idols that his multiplicity of wives had, had uh, begun to worship. Mm-hmm. So we say, oh, are we supposed to live like Solomon did? Well, no. Solomon was violating the first commandment, which right. is very clearly the the prescriptive uh, principle of right and wrong. So that would just those would just be a couple of examples. Right. So I, I, there's a few things I want to tease out of what you've said. Then uh, it seems like one that the point you just made is there are prescriptive things in Scripture that help us understand how to a- apply moral categories to descriptive events. Yes. Right? So the first command, uh, when we read the Solomon story of him setting up idols in high places, when we read that against the background of the prescription of the first and second commandments, we're saying clearly we can say this is wrong because we know it's breaking a prescription of God. Yeah. Um, and so we can we could apply a moral... We, we could. So is there then, when we read it like that, are there prescriptions that we can make from descriptive texts? Yes, there are. Let me let me just before we go there. Let me sure. just say one more thing. Another good example is um, God's will for divorce and remarriage. Okay, yeah. So you remember when they came to Jesus in Matthew nineteen? Mm-hmm. They said, "Was man free to divorce his wife for any cause?" Mm-hmm. Um, well, the the various schools, uh, rabbinic schools, some were very strict, and they said, "No, there's no grounds for divorce at most adultery," and others said, "Nah." You wake up one morning, you don't particularly like her the way she prepares breakfast. Uh, you can divorce her and uh, go marry another. Mm. And Jesus, and this was practiced throughout Israel's history, oftentimes very much to their destruction, especially when they intermarried with pagan peoples. Jesus says, no, 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 that isn't how God intended it from the beginning. He allowed that for the hardness of your heart. So again, this is this is the opposite of what it means when I said we read for people to read the Bible flat mm-hmm. as if anything said at any time in any portion of literature is equally binding on people at all times. Right. Gotta be real careful about that. Mm-hmm. So the question you ask, right, this is this is a significant one. And it especially applies in the New Testament. Okay. 
Um, and that is, when is a descriptive portrayal of some particular narrative stream of events designed to teach us absolute binding truth theologically or binding ethical rules yep. in terms of how we are to live? It's a big question. Yeah. Well, would you answer that for us? Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna go ahead and plead the fifth on that <laughs> one and divert to you, because uh, since oh, you're, the, you're the other person in the room. Oh, gosh. I use my, my Uno skip to yeah. go back to you. First thing people need to remember is there's <clears throat> there's no absolute yes or no. Yeah. Now, there are some people who would say, no, <clears throat> there are no, never. never should you derive a doctrine from a historical mm-hmm. narrative or a descriptive portrayal of events. Well, that's not legitimate. That's not valid. Mm. Uh, we need to ask, what we need to do is we have to ask the old question of authorial intent. Yes. What did the author intend by his writing? So when I'm reading in the book of Acts, I'm going to answer that question differently. Uh, depending on what pat portion of scripture I'm reading, um, or differently based on um, what we believe God was uh, attempting to show us. So, for example, um, you know there are people who want to read uh, the end of Acts chapter two as if it's endorsing communal living right. and socialism. So, because they said that they all the believers had shared everything in yeah. common, and there was yeah. not one needy person among them. Yeah. So we say, well, is that God telling us how we're to do it today? Right. Well, you have to ask the question, well, what does the rest of the New Testament say? Mm. Do we have to bring to bear upon a passage like that the commands or the absence of commands in other portions of the New Testament? Um, certainly Luke was describing how the early church survived and right. how they how they were able to function. Um, so I, I think... You know, I'm just trying to run through my head. Um, here's here's a good example. Let's take Acts five. Okay, Ananias and Sapphira. Right. <laughs> um, here is a story. It's a narrative um, about Ananias and Sapphira, who said, um, "We're going to give you a certain percentage of the amount of the proceeds from the sale of our land." Mm-hmm. So they sell the land, and they only. Uh, they said, well, basically, I think what happened was they probably said, well, we only got this price for it, so we're only going to give you this percentage. Mm-hmm. So basically they lied. Right. And obviously discipline of God falls upon them. Yeah. Now, people debate, were Ananias and Sapphira born again? I said, yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. I, I think they were. Um, so how much do we derive from the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Do we then teach that we can expect that God's going to strike dead on the spot everybody who lies to the Holy Spirit. Right. Because that's what they were accused of doing. Well, no. Mm-hmm. Might he? Yes. <laughs> but, is, it's a warning, but not yeah, a prescription. Yeah. But is there some ethical principle in the story? Uh, yeah. And the answer is yes. You don't lie to the Holy Spirit. Right, yeah. You don't, you don't um, hold back money that you gave verbal commitment to mm-hmm. contribute to the church. So there's an ethical principle embedded in a narrative story mm-hmm. uh, from which we need to learn. Um, so, for example, let's take another, let's go move into Acts 8, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Okay. Um, there's a lot we can learn from that, namely, um, listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, follow directions as to whom you should share uh, the gospel with. Um, be quick to uh, make known uh, who Jesus is and what he accomplished, yeah. uh, baptized them in water upon yeah. their profession of faith. Well, what I don't take away from that is that 
the Spirit of God is going to snatch me up like he did Philip and transport me to another town. Right. You know, that was a profoundly supernatural event. And if he doesn't do it, you don't have to share the gospel with anybody. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Until he does that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Right. So there are certainly a number of places in the book of Acts where I think the reason Luke is portraying for us how the church functioned is because he wants us to learn principles. Here's another. Acts chapter 20, Paul is preaching to, uh, um, well, let's go back a little bit. Paul is in Athens, and it says he's walking through the Areopagus, and it says he's grieved and provoked by all the idolatry, Mm -hmm. and we're told that he was sharing, talking about Jesus in all the synagogues and debating among the philosophers. That's a story. It's a a narrative portrayal of Paul's life and ministry. Um, Are we to go and do likewise? Well, in that case, I say, yeah, probably. Mm. You know, we are to move out into our city. We are to uh, take note of the idolatrous practices. We are to confront people with the truth of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, come to Acts 20, Paul's uh, preaching to the Ephesian elders. Right. Um, he gives us some very clear principles for uh, church government. Mm-hmm. You know, well, they're elders, plural. By the way, they're always plur- in the plurality in the book of Acts, right. which is confirmed in the epistles. Mm-hmm. Um and Paul talks about their responsibilities. He talks about how grievous wolves are going to enter in, even among your own number. So be careful that you don't get deluded. Um, he talks about, uh, you know, for, here's another example. He talks about what he was and was not willing to do. For example, Paul worked with his own hands because he didn't want to become a financial burden to the people mm-hmm. to whom he ministered. Right. So. Does that mean that every pastor should be bivocational? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, no, because we have teaching clearly in the in the epistles where those who uh, preach the gospel should earn their living from the exactly. gospel. Exactly. Yeah. So, I it's not a simple yes or no answer to your question. It <laughs> right. is it is it is uh, massively complex at times, and so we have to pause in each narrative and say, all right, what's the main point here? Mm-hmm. Instead of drawing from all the peripheral elements. What's the primary reason why Luke included this? Uh, do we see here um, an ethical principle or a right or a wrong or a theological truth that we know to be true from other portions of the New Testament? Right. And even if we don't, are we supposed to learn from how the early church conducted uh, itself um, and, and apply that in some manner to the 21st century? Mm. Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes it's no. It's it's not uh, I know people want kind of a cookie cutter give me a simple answer that I can apply across the board in right. all cases folks forget it yeah. it it just doesn't work that way yep and then I there's a couple things I, I want to I want to try to try to work through here too that that might be helpful uh, and I'm gonna save a little batch of them for the for the very end I want to talk about uh, the Old Testament narratives and how you you mentioned it already how to see typology in it Sure. And how they point to Christ. Before we get there, what are some maybe pitfalls or dangers or bad ways that you've seen people interpret Old Testament Old Testament narrative that that we should be aware of? Or sometimes like, oh man, I do that in my own Bible study. I didn't know I should I should be careful not to do that. Are there any that come to mind when I talk about that? I would let me give a, a general response, and then I'll give particular examples. Okay. A general response is. Um, <clears throat> We need to read the Old Testament narratives in light of the New Testament. Yes. Um, this is, and this is kind of a more general principle of interpretation. 
Too many Christians read the Old Testament as if Jesus never came. Yeah. And they don't realize that the purpose of the Old Testament was preparatory. Yes. Uh, that it was designed to pave the way, uh, even the very existence of the nation of Israel, mm-hmm. the various individuals that we read about and their activities, um, all, virtually all of this in some way or shape or form is designed to prepare us personally, theologically, emotionally, historically, for the coming of Jesus, who is the antitypical fulfillment. And so um, that's why, you know, that's why this notion that we've heard in by some in the evangelical world that we need to unhitch from the Old Testament right. is so utterly ludicrous. Yeah, and so damaging. Oh, I'm like, yeah. Um, yeah, especially when you read passages like uh, Romans 15.4, and I just have it in front of me, in Rome, where Paul writes in Romans 15.4, uh, that for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, Oof. that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. <laughs> Paul's saying, everything you read in the Old Testament, it was written not to you, but, for. but it was written for you yeah. to be encouraged, to learn how to endure. Well, and then we have to ask, well, in what sense was it written for us? Uh, let me just okay. Let me give one particular example. Yeah, there is a a, a group of churches. I won't mention them, and because I, I don't want to, I love them. I think they're wonderful Bible believing Christians, mm-hmm. but they employ what they call the Moses model of church leadership. Right. And what they do is they go back and they look at how Moses led Israel. And so there's this singular voice, this singular authority, who basically ruled almost unilaterally. Mm-hmm. Although certainly he had counselors and others who could help him adjudicate decisions. Remember when Jethro came to him and yep. said, you can't handle all this on your own. Mm-hmm. You know, you need people to come alongside and help you. But still they say a local church should have a, a quote-unquote Moses, mm-hmm. the senior pastor, who has almost unilateral authority in the government of the church. And, and instead of saying, no, wait just a moment. It may well be true that Moses had that level of authority right. during that period in Israel's history, but to kind of kind of dig that out and kind of lift it out of the text and then plant it down in the New Testament and say, all right, all New Testament churches need to operate on that principle, mm. when the New Testament, in fact, gives us a quite different approach to church government, right. where there are a plurality of elders uh, who are designed to lead the church. So... That's that's an example where you read an Old Testament story and you think, well, that looks pretty wise. Mm-hmm. It worked pretty well for them. Why don't we apply it to us today? Well, you have to stop and say, why did God institute it at that time under that covenant mm-hmm. and those terms during the time of the Old Testament? And why would he give us different instructions in the New? And, and again, please, people understand. And saying things in the Bible are different doesn't mean they're contradictory. Right. Because <laughs> people hear that and say, wait a minute, Moses governed the people of Israel by himself. Now you've got plurality of elders in the New Testament. Those are contradictory. No, they're not. They're just different. Right, right. And I think another way, like, and this kind of gets into what you were talking about, but we, I think we, we tend to want to insert ourselves into the story or or take something out of the story and put it into our own situation. Yeah. When instead, if we don't read the Bible flatly, we read it as a cohesive whole that's 
um, that's preparatory, especially for the Old Testament to New Testament, we, we don't really see like my senior pastor is the new Moses. We see Jesus is the new Moses. Right. And how does he fulfill the position of Moses yeah. for the new people of God? Not how do I fulfill the position of Moses for the people of God? And so we ask Christ-centered questions that help us also navigate some of those dangerous areas probably. Yeah. And getting back to your original question, um, it is very common for us to read the Old Testament stories and we say things like, dare to be a Daniel, you know? Yes, to right. What, to what extent is Daniel a role model for us? And I think, yes, he can be. Yep. I mean, you look at his uh, his uncompromising commitment to pray, knowing that it could get him thrown in the lion's den. Yes. Uh, you look at uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and, and such things. But we also have to realize Daniel was operating under a different covenant at a different time in the history of God's people. Mm. Or um, classic example is David and Goliath. Yes. Um, everybody reads that story and says, David is me. Right. No, David is Christ. Yes. <laughs> he is the actual son of David who yeah. slays the giant of sin and death exactly. and wins a victory for his people. Exactly. And then goes and sits on a throne. Yeah. He's the David. <laughs> yeah. So we have to be careful. Yeah. I think, again, the mistake is it's, some people just, it's all or nothing. Mm-hmm. Either we have... All of the Old Testament characters are role models, mm. or none of them are. Right. And I, again, that's a mistake. The yeah. Bible is more nuanced than that. Yes. And we have to be when we read it. And so um, there are certain individuals. Um, I mean, you, just, you read Joseph's story in the book of Genesis, and it's very clear that he was a type of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, the same with Moses. I mean, the, 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 the parallels, the type, anti-type between Moses and Jesus are just massive. Yes. Um, th- there are, uh, you know, you just think of uh, other figures throughout the, the, the history of the Old Testament. Uh, Jacob, yeah. for example. I didn't have time to develop this, for example. Uh, I wish I had when I was preaching through John 4. Oh, yeah. But um, it, it's important that the Samaritan woman identifies the well as Jacob's well, and he used to send his people here to draw well from it. Are you greater than Jacob? And of course, the whole point is, yes. Yep. <laughs> right, yeah. I wish I had time. Jesus is the greater Jacob. Yep. Um, yep. Who yep. even went to a well to find a wife. Yeah. And now Jesus is there with a woman who is an adult. Like, there's all these parallels that are sure. happening here that Jesus is trying to pull on to say, I'm better than Jacob. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so- something else that you mentioned uh, quite a ways back in the episode that I want to I try to bring back in because I, I think a lot of our listeners will be thinking like, okay, I can see Jesus as a type of Moses, and I, I think I, if, if I could read a biblical character, I might be able to understand how Jesus fulfills and, and magnifies the good example or the, the um, position in Israel or in salvation history that this character filled or did better than this, like Solomon who fell. He's mm-hmm. the son of David who holds up God's commandments, not the son of David who, like Solomon, goes away from them, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, so we can kind of see Jesus in those characters. But you mentioned earlier when we were talking about descriptive versus prescriptive narrative, you mentioned the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, mm-hmm. which is a descriptive narrative of something that happens in the Bible. Uh, and then Paul picks up on Sarah and Hagar, I think in Galatians, and he's like, this is an, a- and, and does he use the word allegory? This is an allegory for the slave woman and the free woman for the those under the old covenant and new covenant, I think is, yeah. the, is the comparison yeah. he makes. I mean, that, and I know that's a hotbed of yeah. debate, but just like how, how, like how can, how are we supposed to see, are, are we supposed to see like foreshadowings and types and stuff in descriptive details like that? 
Sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Everybody says, Storm, stop it. Just give, give me a, a yes or a yeah. no. <laughs> Sometimes. Um, yeah, because, you know, the question of, you use the word allegory. Well, mm. that's the that's what comes across in the English translation. This, maybe our concept of what an allegory is is not necessarily what Paul meant by the term. Exactly. Yeah. So, we, for example, people hear that and they think, oh, Pilgrim's Progress. Yes, well, right. no, that's not exactly how right. Paul is intending the word. Uh, there are symbols. There are uh, types and anti-types. Um, so I'm trying to get got off base. I'm trying to remember what your question was. Yeah, but, I, I was just asking. Like, are there like how how when we come across descriptive details in narratives, mm-hmm. what, are is there a responsible way to um, see how it was preparatory for Christ? Yeah, of course. That's the whole issue of how the New Testament interprets the Old. Mm-hmm. For example, it raises the issue, and here's another big phrase, sensus plenior, mm. which is Latin for a fuller sense or a more complete sense. And what that means is this. When, um, let's say, when Moses was recording the incident of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar right. and that whole story, did he have in his own conscious <laughs> thought what Paul was going to derive from it when right. he wrote about it in Galatians? No. And the answer is that is No. So we know that oftentimes there was a fuller or more complete sense or intent in a biblical author's uh, uh, des- uh, description of, uh, of what is going on than what he consciously had in his mind. Right. Now, some people are scared of that. Yeah. Some scholars say, wait just a minute, you just opened the door to all sorts of speculation. Right. And you know, they're right, Yeah. but that's okay. Yeah, and there's responsible <laughs> ways to do biblical interpretation sure. even with that door open, right? Yeah. So like you read the story of Sarah and Hagar and they're like Paul is being completely um responsible with that text whenever he talks about a slave woman and a free woman, right? And, he, yeah. and because like and that's that's the point that Moses was making in that story and that God was making by accepting Sarah's child and not Hagar's. He's like, "No, there's a line of promise that I have covenanted with and Hagar's outside of that." Yeah. And so, and so, like uh, that's what he's that Paul's pulling on. Like, well, where's God's covenant? Where are God's promises? Well, they're in Christ. And so, there's people who are of the slave woman and of the free woman. So he's making the same application of the text that Genesis itself was making, which I think is one of the principles of responsible quote unquote allegory when we look for types of Christ or the New Testament yeah. in, in, in the New Testament. And related to that, which is again, it opens a can of worms, is. Um, some people say, okay, I'm willing to concede census plenior, a fuller sure. sense, but only if the New Testament explicitly identifies oh, it. Oh, right. So, yeah, so then when it, if the New Testament doesn't talk about it, we can't. Right. We can't so even for read example, Hebrew literature meditatively. Yeah, Matthew um, uses the, uh, uh, the, the, the bringing of children out of Egypt yeah. uh, as, uh, in some sense, uh, typological or a foreshadowing of Jesus coming out of Egypt after the attempt on Herod on his right. life. Well, so, so we know that that, therefore, was in some sense, at least in God's mind, if not Moses' mind, when that story was penned in the book of Exodus. But what about, um, what about places that aren't explicitly mentioned in the New Testament? Um, are we allowed to go back into the Old Testament and read it. Now, this is interesting. This gets us into a whole other discussion. Mm-hmm. There, there's a New Testament scholar named Richard Hayes, mm-hmm. who teaches at Duke, yep. who wrote a book called Reading Backwards. Yep. Absolutely marvelous it's great. <laughs> and what he's saying is, um, now that we are on this side of the cross, the resurrection, the day of Pentecost, 
we see the fulfillment, uh, the, the complete canonical fulfillment of all God's purposes as revealed in the New Testament, we need to then look back through those into the Old Testament narrative, and we will see things that we didn't see before. Yes. And some scholars say, no, that's dangerous. I think he's exactly right. I, the whole point is you have to look at the Old Testament through the prism of Christ, yes. the, the, the lens of Christ and who he is and what he's done. Um, and I think, honestly, I think perhaps the biggest mistake evangelicals make is they read the Old Testament as an end in itself. Yeah, absolutely. And you can't do that. You have to realize that it had a place in God's progressive unfolding revelation that is consummated in the person work of Jesus. Yeah, and and I think that um, the New Testament backs this up. Whenever it says like there was this mystery hidden mm-hmm. uh, in in all of the Old Testament, and now it's come to its fulfillment in Christ. You mentioned Matthew being this person who looked back at what seemed to be really obscure biblical texts and to make them apply to Jesus. But uh, I, I think it's in Matthew thirteen. Uh, that he 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 he's the only gospel author who records Jesus saying this little mini parable that a scribe trained in the kingdom of heaven is like a man who goes to his treasure and pulls out of it treasures both old and new. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, what, what's a scribe trained in the kingdom of heaven? Well, what do they do? They they handle the Old Testament. And when you're trained in the kingdom of heaven, you go back to the Old Testament and you pull out old treasure. Like all that old treasure is still there. But there's new treasure, and who is that new treasure? What's well, Jesus Himself? Like, I just think it's amazing. Like that, that the Old Testament is like a treasure chest, and yeah. we and like Jesus invites us to go in and look at it through His lens. Yeah, and just that reference you made to the mystery. You know, Ephesians three talks mm. about that. Um, at the end of Romans chapter sixteen, it talks about it, and that's a multifaceted concept. It's not just a singular truth. Mm. But there are multiple facets to the mystery of that has now been fulfilled in Christ. By mystery, make sure people understand. We're not talking about an Agatha Christie novel, right? Uh, Who done it? We're talking about truths that uh, were previously undisclosed that are now made clear by virtue of the coming of Christ. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Um, man, I mean, there's so much more I want to talk about, but I, I feel like we've laid out some, uh, at least some guardrails on both sides and, and a way forward. Um, is there anything you, you feel like left that you want to touch on before we kind of close up this this chat on narrative? No, I think that's I think that's it. Um, I would just encourage people resist the temptation to read the Bible flat, yeah, as if there were not differing purposes among different authors writing in different genres under different covenants at different times. Um, And again, I know this sounds overwhelming to some people. And and I I just want to say this. We have, we live in a day in which the resources available to help you recognize these differences are just massive. And, and the simplest thing you can do is get a good study Bible. Mm -hmm. I would recommend, I mean, there are a bunch of them, the ESV study Bible and the NIV study Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, it's that Crossway and Zondervan, exactly, yeah. exactly, um, and they will they will enable you. They give you notes, they give you introductions, they point out these distinctions, and it will help you immensely in avoiding this kind of flat reading. And also, the second thing: be careful that you don't think that just because something is said in the Bible that 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 God is saying go and do likewise. Right. You got to be careful about turning a descriptive portrayal 
into a prescriptive mandate. Yep. I think that's one of the most helpful things that we've kind of teased out in this episode. So hopefully that's helpful to everyone who's listening. Um, it, this has definitely been instructive for me and uh, uh, a conversation I wish we could continue for a couple more hours, but we're going to end the episode here. And uh, next week, we're going to sit down and talk about um, how to read law. And please come back for that. Don't be scared. Come back. We want to we want to we want to talk about that. Those long sections of law code that you probably just skip over or trudge through out of religious guilt. <laughs> Maybe we can talk about how to read them fruitfully. So um, until then, uh, we hope you have fun reading narrative this week, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Bridgeway Podcast, where you will find a new conversation every Thursday. For more information about Bridgeway Church, we invite you to visit bridgewaychurch.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BridgewayOKC, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash bridgewaychurchOKC. If you have any questions that you would like us to address on the podcast, feel free to email us at podcast at bridgewaychurch.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on the podcast app as it helps other people like you find our program. So on behalf of all the pastors and staff here at Bridgeway Church, I'm David Bowden saying thanks for listening and we will see you next week.